0: Sin was great, your love was great
1: So much. What a powerful name it is. And we bear that name. That is wonderful. That song, I cannot listen to it without tearing up. It is such a great tribute to the greatest man who has ever lived, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love Jesus. And beyond loving him, I stand in awe of who he is and what he has done. And as you can see, we are in part two. So if you missed last week, you're going to be lost. I'm sorry. No, I think you'll catch up pretty quickly. One God and one Lord. And the theme verse for the title is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Last week, we focused on one God. This week, we're going to focus on one Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, Yet for us, there is one God the Father, yet for us. For others, they may be other gods. Yet for us, there is but one God, and he is the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Early Christians were persecuted because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. Because for us, only Jesus is Lord. Everything, according to these verses, ultimately comes from God. But everything that we receive from God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Apart from that finished work, there is no place for us in heaven, there is no name above all names for us to bear. Last week, we looked at one God as the Father. This is very clear throughout the New Testament, that the one true God is the Father. When you look at the Old Testament, what's very clear is the one true God is Yahweh. That was his name, his covenant name to Israel. Not everybody could call him Yahweh, but his chosen people, Israel, could call him Yahweh. We get to call him Father. That's a major upgrade. We also saw that in the Bible, at least, Only the Father is called the one true God. Now this is radically different from the traditional idea that God is a trinity, which that idea has held sway within Christianity since 381 A.D. Notice I didn't say since 1 A.D. It took several hundred years before that idea came into fruition. What we want, what we really want to get to, is not what the church Thought about God in the fourth century. What we really want to get to is what God says about Himself in Scripture in the first century and since then. Now I don't often teach on this subject directly. Anyway, I mean I often read verses that you know the Father is the one true God, Jesus is our Lord. Those are come up all the time in Scripture. Uh, But to cover it from the looking at the two aspects, if the Father alone is God, then the traditional idea of the Trinity has some flaws in it. And the reason I don't cover it so often from that perspective is I choose or I prefer to teach what the Bible says, not what the Bible doesn't say. It's much more fun to teach what it says. But at times it's important to look at both sides of the issue so that we can understand what the Scriptures are presenting. Truth versus Tradition has been a problem that the church has battled for centuries. And before the church had the problem of truth versus tradition, the Jews had the problem of truth versus tradition. God's word is truth, but man adds lots of things to God's word. And they are traditions. And tradition, by the way, is a very powerful force in the human soul. The only problem is tradition is no guarantee for truth. God's word is truth. Jesus had to confront traditional belief constantly in his time on earth, in the ministry and the Gospels. And one such time is in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees. These are the big shots in the law. They know the law of God backwards and forwards. And yet, they were more prone to discuss and argue about their traditions than about the scriptures. And one such argument was over how often you need to wash your hands. Doesn't sound like the most important issue, but that was their issue. And they criticized Jesus' disciples because they didn't wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders. They did not accuse his disciples of breaking the word of God. They accused his disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders. And you want to know something? Jesus didn't give a rip about their tradition. He cared about God's truth. And look what he says to them. In Mark 7, verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. I can kind of sense sarcasm in that verse. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. We are after biblical truth, not religious tradition. And the evidence is clear in the Bible that God is the Father. And the Father alone is called the one true God in Scripture. Now, we're going to turn to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful, wonderful, and powerful name that is. The identity of Jesus Christ has been the subject of a lot more speculation and tradition than the identity of God as the Father. And one of the things I wanted to establish with you last week and we spent a lot of time showing was that the Bible never once refers to God as a Trinity or to even anything close to a Trinity. That was the question you had to handle first. Because if the Bible refers to God as a Trinity, our job is to find out what, is, what composes that Trinity, right? But the Bible doesn't refer to God as a Trinity. It refers to God as the Father and as Jesus, his only begotten Son. Once you establish how the Bible presents God, all the other things fall into order. And they all agree that the Father is the one true God and that Jesus is his Son. So what we're going to look at this morning is, who is Jesus? That's a great question. Who is Jesus? Everybody has heard this name. We're coming up on the Christmas season. Everybody has heard the name of Jesus. But who is he? That's the central question for every man and woman. And Jesus Christ is, rightly so, the central figure of all of humanity. But who and what is he? He's a man of Israel, certainly. You get that by reading the Gospels. But what else? He posed this very question to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, let's look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Good question. Who's who's everybody talking about? What do they say I am? Next verse. And they said, well, Jesus, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus then said to them, but who do you say I am? That's the question. Who do you say he is? Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? He turned it right back at them. And then Simon was the spokesman at this point. And Simon says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Believing that Jesus is a nice guy is not enough. He was a nice guy. It's not enough. Believing that he was a great teacher, not enough. The Muslims believe that he is a prophet, but they deny what Peter said. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here we have, even during his earthly ministry, there were many suggestions put forward as to who the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter gave the only correct answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus pointed out that Peter was not able to give this answer because of his great intellect and reasoning abilities. He was able to give this correct answer because the Father had shown it to him. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the word Christ simply means the anointed one. People could be anointed for a lot of reasons in the Old Testament. You were anointed to be a king. You were anointed to be a prophet. Jesus was anointed as the Messiah, the the Redeemer, the one who would bring man back to God. Let's look at Acts 2, and we're going to see Peter again. Peter's great. Peter was always out in front speaking sometimes it was with his foot-in-his-mouth but many other times peter just said beautiful and wondrous truth that's why everybody identifies with peter he screwed up he screwed up and there it is written for us on the pages of the bible i'm like him <laughs> but here's what peter said on the day of pentecost the first time anybody could be a christian acts 2:22 men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In that last song, what a beautiful name. One of the lines in it is that Jesus silenced the boast of sin, death, and the grave. The grave had a big boast. It had conquered everybody. There was not a human who had lived that the grave did not ultimately and eventually conquer until it hit Jesus. And he silenced that boast because God raised him from the dead. Jesus is a man attested to or approved by God through the miracles that God did through him. God did the miracles through Christ. That's the same way God does miracles today. When you pray for someone, Ryan prays for someone, God answers that prayer. He brings that miracle, that healing through Christ. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is another description of Jesus Christ and of his relationship to God. And it's a, it gives them important information. That again, remember, it starts off, For the Scriptures say. For the Scriptures say. And that's really all that matters. Other people say other things. But the Scriptures say, God has put all thing, things under Christ's feet. Or his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. So, who's on top? God. Who's right underneath him? Christ. Then, when all things are under his, under Christ's authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over over everything, everywhere. Top is God, the Father, the one true God. Right under God is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's right-hand man. He is second to God only in power, majesty, and authority. And all this power, majesty, and authority was given to Christ by God. No one disputes that Jesus Christ was a man. No one disputes that. After all, he was born. He had brothers and sisters. He became an adult. It says he grew in wisdom. All Christians can agree with Peter. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter said he was a man approved by God by miracles, signs, and wonders. Every Christian would agree with that. Unfortunately, most Christians don't stop with what the scriptures say. They add the idea that not only is Jesus Christ the man, our Savior, our Redeemer, but that he is also God the Son, the second person of a triune God called the Trinity, and that he is 100% God and 100% man. But is this found in Scripture? Is this a scriptural description of Jesus? No, it is not. Nowhere does the Bible describe Jesus in any of these terms. Now, we, of course, believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ his Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible just simply doesn't present them all as one entity. Now, the history of why people thought Jesus was different than just a man, as he's portrayed, goes all the way back into the first century. Because in the first century, as the gospel moved out beyond the Jews, it hit the pagan world. It hit the Greek philosophical world. And they had different ideas, and they had no background in Scripture. To the pagans, humans could become gods. That's just part, like all the emperors were made gods. Hercules was made a god. In the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas do a miracle in Lystra, they healed somebody who was lame. You know what the next thing happens? They declared them gods. The priest of Zeus wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because in the pagan way of thinking, men could be gods, but not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. But, you know, the first error about the identity of Christ was not from pagan religion. It was from pagan philosophy because Greek philosophy, much of it anyway, said that the physical world was evil. Physical matter was evil. A lot of Christians still believe that today. It's Not biblical, but they believe that. So here's their problem. Okay, if physical matter was evil, then Jesus couldn't have been physical matter because that would mean he would be evil. And Jesus isn't evil. That's what they thought. Their logic internally was okay. It just didn't go with the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't say that the world is evil. It says that it's fallen. It says that it has been corrupted, not that it is evil. So, this, this error, by the way, came up at the end of the first century. And the Apostle John, God has the Apostle John combat this error, go right against it. He has to do it in his epistles. And this was as near as we can tell, around 85 or 95 AD, that this error really came out. And here's what God had John write 2 John 1 7. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They said Jesus Christ was not a human. He was just an appearance. He was an apparition, a hologram, whatever they want to call him. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, John was successful in combating this error, and it died away. After all, it's a pretty easy one to combat because All the verses about Jesus being a man, doing things physically, eating, he was a man. He was human. This era finally faded away. But the idea that Jesus was something more than a man resurfaced again in the second century. And by the fourth century, this idea had evolved into something very different. It evolved into what we currently call the doctrine of the Trinity. And again, the discussions about this focused on Jesus and how could Jesus be sinless? How could Jesus possibly be sinless? That doesn't make any sense. We've never encountered a man who was sinless. But it was clear that the Bible required a sinless sacrifice. That's also all over the Bible, New and Old Testament. But how could we get a sinless man? I look around me and I see good people, good people. Not sinless people, okay? There's a difference. And that's what these theologians saw. They said, I see good people. I just don't see sinless people, and I don't see possibly how we could ever get a sinless person. They kind of forget that the first two humans were sinless. Adam and Eve were sinless until they sinned. And people don't think about that, but you know, what do you think? God created corrupt, sinful humans? No, they were sinless until they sinned. So God can bring forth sinless people. How does he do that? Have you ever wondered why so much ink is devoted to the birth records of Jesus? I mean it's not like he was teaching anything in the manger, he wasn't doing any miracles in the manger. Why so much backstory? Well, there's an important reason for this backstory, because these birth records show us the identity of Christ and how he could qualify as a sinless redeemer. And to qualify as our redeemer, two things had to be. He had to be in the line of Adam. Well, that's easy. All humans are in that. But he also had to be in the line of Abraham. And he had to be sinless. We are real good at making humans. We are not good at making sinless humans. But God had it all covered. Mary was the physical mother of Jesus. And God was his physical father. That's why he is called the only begotten or born son of God. You and I are sons and daughters of God spiritually. But my physical parents were George and Marie Carden. Jesus' physical parents were Mary and God. Mary, in our understanding of biology, Mary provided the egg, and God created the sperm. And what we get from that is God bringing forth once again a sinless and perfect human being. This makes Jesus different than you and me. Not in his humanity, but in his being without sin and his relationship to God as the only begotten son of God. Now, the apostles asked an interesting question about Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. Why don't we look at that? Matthew eight twenty-seven. This is after he had stilled the storm. And here's what he says. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What sort of man is Jesus? He was not and is not a man like you or me. He is a man like Adam before he sinned. That's what Jesus was like. Human, yes, but not just like every guy you pass on the street. You know, from the moment that God confronted Adam and Eve about their sin, we have the promise of a Redeemer. That's what God did first. He promised the Redeemer. He promised that he would send a descendant, the seed or the offspring of Eve, who would redeem mankind. Notice he didn't say the offspring of Adam and Eve. He said the offspring of Eve, it would be from the woman. Now, in order for God's plan of redemption to work, the Messiah had to be a human. He had to be a man. That's what it says very clearly in Romans chapter 5 and several other places. Romans 5 just gives us a lot of verses about this. And I want you to look at all the times the word one is used in this section of Scripture says in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, who was that one man? Adam. And much more uh, died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Next verse. Jesus Christ. Then we see go on to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That one act of righteousness that is talking about here is his death on the cross. Because every work that Jesus did was righteous, but it was his death on the cross that brought us salvation. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. For redemption to work, the Messiah had to be a man who would succeed where Adam had failed. God just couldn't send an angel. He couldn't say, hey, Gabriel, will you go down and clean up this mess? No, he couldn't send an angel to do it. God couldn't do it himself, and God doesn't cheat, so he's not going to just snap his fingers like nothing happened. Something did happen, and God was going to solve the problem, but to solve it required a Messiah who would be a sinless sacrifice to replace the sin of Adam. That's why Romans, time and again, one man, one man, one man, one man, back and forth. 1 Timothy 2.5, look at this verse. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He was not an apparition. He was not God the Son. He was a man in the likeness of Adam, sinless from his birth, who could lay down his life. Because unlike Adam, Jesus stayed sinless. See, the scriptures clearly present Jesus as a man. He is called the Son of God over 40 times. Do you know how many times he's called God the Son? Zero times. He's never called that. That's not a biblical idea. That is a traditional idea. Jesus Christ actually most frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man. That's how he usually self-referred. He calls himself a man in John 8 also, but mostly he called himself the Son of Man. Jesus never once claimed to be God. Now, when you start looking at the scriptures, it's clear that the Messiah had to be a man. It's clear that the Father is the one true God. But there are also other verses that make the idea of a Trinity impossible. And I'm going to look at a couple with you today. Look at James one thirteen. These, these are very easy scriptures, by the way. James 1.13. We're finding it. You don't see it. Okay, well, you know what? I'm going to read it to you. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he, God himself, tempts no one. That's a pretty clear verse, right? You can't tempt God to do evil, and God doesn't tempt anybody. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Do I have that one in there, hon? I got that one in there. Good. It says, for we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. I cannot sympathize with what it means to give birth to a child. I can look at it. I was there when mine were born. I can see my wife's lovely face. I can see what happened, but I don't have that experience. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'm sure you see the problem here. God cannot be tempted. Jesus was tempted in all ways like us. So if God cannot be tempted and Jesus was tempted, they cannot be the same entity. And the Bible doesn't teach them that way. Another thing... Pretty much everybody understands that God is all-knowing, right? Nothing escapes his attention, his knowledge, his wisdom. God is all-knowing. The word they use to describe it is omniscient, all-knowing. But yet, when Jesus was asked when he was going to return, this is the answer he gave in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus is talking. But concerning that day, the day of his return, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. These verses, and many others like them, are clear about Jesus and God being two separate beings. Now, Jesus Christ, that does not make Jesus a man like you and me. What Jesus was, was a man like Adam before he sinned. That's a critical difference. You may be wondering, with so many clear verses about the identity of Jesus Christ, why don't more people recognize the problems with thinking of God as a trinity? Well, the fact is, more and more people are recognizing that there are problems with the traditional view of God within the church. What I have encountered with lots of people over the years is, they've simply been told that God is a trinity and that this is a mystery that you will never understand. So you know what? They don't think about it much. Okay, so he's a trinity. I don't know what that means, and I'll never understand it. Okay, next. But you know something? More and more people are thinking about it. Because actually, the Bible doesn't say the trinity is a mystery, because the Bible never mentions the trinity at all. What the Bible talks about is one God, and more and more people are beginning to think and coming to question the traditional teaching of the Trinity. And as a result, they are beginning in the Christian church to modify how they look at God and His Son. That's a good first step. Now, there are also, to be fair, there are verses in the Bible that are ambiguous about Jesus Christ, but mostly they're ambiguous because people come to the Bible already believing that God is a trinity. And if you believe something, you tend to read it into it. That's why I first covered, does the Bible call God a trinity? No. Therefore, stop looking for it. It's not there. But what we can look at, there's probably only 12 or 15 ambiguous verses about the nature of Jesus Christ. And you compare that to hundreds of clear verses about him being the son of man, him being born of a woman, all these other verses about God and his son. Now, I cover those verses, some of these more difficult verses, I cover that in the book One God, the Unfinished Reformation. And what I'm also going to do is make some short YouTube videos on some of them, because we'll have these two teachings on our website, on one God and one Lord, and I think it's only fair to put some of the other verses up there as well, so that people can understand. What I want to look at this morning is one of the biggest verses that is misunderstood about Jesus Christ. And it is also, to my estimation, one of the most profound declarations of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that is the opening of the Gospel of John. Take a look at John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, aside from just being beautifully eloquent That is painting a wonderful mind picture for us. Unfortunately, many Christians misread these first two verses. You know what they read? They look at them and they say, In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. The verse doesn't say anything like that. It speaks of something called the Word, and we need to understand what God is talking about. Jesus is not going to be introduced until verse 14. Why don't you put up that slide on the word logos. What is the logos? That's what the, the word for word in Greek is logos. How many have ever heard that word logos before? It's not, it's not uncommon. What is the logos of John 1? That's the central issue, not only to understanding this first chapter, but to understanding everything that happens in the Gospel of John. Now, when it says that Logos is translated word, that's not talking about words in a sentence, okay? It's not talking about the building blocks of language. It's talking about something a good bit deeper than that. And this word Logos is translated a lot of different ways in the New Testament. It's translated as saying, statement, communication, account, message, all over the map. According to the best Greek dictionaries, The word Logos means a verbal expression of your mind. A verbal expression of your mind. Here in John, Logos refers to the expression of the innermost thoughts of God himself. Remember, if you go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said... And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the dry land appear. And God said, and God said. God had in his mind creation before he spoke it into existence. He wasn't just, you know, going by the seat of his pants on this. Now, God's word is about to reach its fullest expression. You might think that the wonders of the universe is the fullest expression of the word of God. I don't think that. I think the heavens are wonderfully awesome, but I don't think they're the fullest expression of God. The fullest expression of God is his son. And now we're going to skip to verse 14. The next several verses are great verses. I encourage you to read them. They are about God working in creation and God working with his people. And it ends up with, the, with John the Baptist, who was just before Christ. So I'm going to skip so that you can see the continuity of thought here from the end of, chap, of verse 2 to the start of verse 14. You're going to see a wondrous connection here. Look at John 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then, verse 14: And the Word was made flesh. This which had been with God in the beginning, this which had been his innermost thoughts, plans, purposes, and wisdom. It was personified. It was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That's Jesus, the only begotten of God. He was born with God as his physical father, as opposed to you and I, and he is full of grace and truth. Christ embodied all of God's word, all of God's plans, his promises, his wisdom regarding salvation. Ever since Genesis 3.15, that's the first promise of a Messiah. Ever since Genesis 3.15, the great subject of the word has been this Messiah who's given a name in the Gospels. This word or this plan or this wisdom had been with God and has now come into fruition. Now, the word was made flesh. Who made it flesh? God did. God said, let there be light. Who made the light? God, the one who said it. How did God make the word flesh? Well, that's where the other Gospels come in, or two of the other Gospels that talk about his birth. The long-awaited coming of the promised Messiah was now a reality. God's word is now made flesh. That is a powerful declaration of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And once you get that, you will understand the rest of the Gospel of John. Christ personified the solemn word of God with all its hope and promise. Now, why is this important? Why is it important to have a correct understanding of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Father being the one true God? Well, several reasons. First, it's always good to agree with God. I mean, if you want to agree with somebody, it's always good to agree with God. After that, agree with your wife. But it's always good to agree with God. And truth is always simpler than theology. Try to ask somebody to explain the Trinity to you sometime. It is the most complicated piece of theology you will ever encounter, whereas biblical truth is simple, easy to be entreated. But there are other specific reasons why it's important to understand Jesus as the Son of God. First, if you start thinking of Jesus as somehow or in some way God, It undermines his great sacrifice. If Jesus was God, what was happening on the cross? God can't die. If Jesus was God on the cross, he's play acting. It's a nice moral play illustrating a wonderful thing, but it ain't real because God can't die. Recognizing that Jesus was a man does not diminish him into being just like you or I, far from it who like who on all the earth is like jesus adam may have begun sinless but christ finished that way there is none like him that's why the bible calls jesus the last adam the last one to have a universal impact on mankind second why is it important to understand who jesus is because as we read in romans redemption requires a man to lay down his life Anything else simply would not have worked. Thirdly, your prayer life. Not understanding the difference between God and His Son muddles our prayer lives. You can go to churches all over the world today, and many of the prayers, not all I know, but many of the prayers offered in these churches are addressed to Jesus directly. Do you know how many prayers are addressed to Jesus in the Bible? Zero. None. Not a single prayer anywhere in the Bible is addressed to Jesus. We address our prayers to God through Jesus. All things come through Jesus. That's what we opened up with in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 6. Now, okay, so people muddle this up. Our God is famous for cutting us slack, okay? He is like famous for that. So even though Christians might muddle up their prayer life a bit, you think God can sort that out? I'm pretty sure he can. He's smart. He's God. You know, he's all-knowing. He's also all-smart. Here's another thing that, uh, that is affected if we don't understand Jesus as human, and that is our identification and imitation of Christ. Because how can I imitate God? I mean, I can't create anything. And this idea, when you look at ministries like Dan Moeller, like Todd White, like Bill Johnson, ministries that are big into identification, they all recognize that Jesus on earth had to be a man. They might still call him a trinity elsewhere, but they understand that everything he did on earth, he had to do as a man. Otherwise, who am I identifying with? I, want to give, I, I quoted, gave you this quote last week from Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson believes that God is a trinity, by the way, but he understands the problems in it, and he has modified how he views Christ, for which he is widely criticized, as you might, as you might understand. Look what he says. Let's face it. If Jesus did all his miracles as God, I'm still impressed. Yeah, they were good miracles. But that is an impossible example for me to follow. That's what he finally understood. Next one. When I see that he, that Jesus did what he did as a man following his father, then I am compelled to do whatever I need to do to follow that example. Because I can't be God, but I can follow in, his, in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. I can imitate Christ. I am no longer content to live as I am. I don't want you to be content to live as you are. You have a savior who died for you who did great signs, miracles, and wonders, and you can live just like him. He said so himself. I'm not making this up. He said, whoever believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these will he do because I go unto the Father. Jesus himself said we could do his works. And how are we going to do his works? Same way he did. Follow the lead of the Father. Now, I do not consider what others may believe about the Trinity to be a make-or-break issue as to whether I can fellowship with them or learn from them. I am happy to learn from anybody, even if I disagree on certain issues. And let me tell you, I disagree with everyone on certain issues, including myself. (laughs) I am happy to learn from everyone. Now, regarding disagreements about this important topic, let me say this. People who believe that God is a trinity and people who believe that the Father alone is God can both be Christian. Okay, so don't throw stones at anybody. How do I know this? Because I know Christians who believe that God is a trinity and speak in tongues. Just pro- That proves that they are Christian, that they have the Spirit. I know people like you and I, like myself, who believe that the Father alone is God and they speak in tongues, proving that they also are Christian. See, the reason we're all Christian is because we all agree on the central issue that Jesus is our Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And therefore, we share that in common with all Christians. Now, I want to close with another question because we've looked at everything about Jesus in the Bible, which basically is talking about him in the Gospels, right? That's where, he's, that's where you see Jesus. What about Jesus today? It's clear that he was a man like Adam before the fall, as he walked the earth. What is he today? Let me tell you something. The answer is much more. Much more. When you consider Jesus at this, at this very moment, he is much more than he was before the resurrection. While on earth, he was a man like Adam before the fall. Now God has exalted him beyond all his earthly life and ministry. Jesus now has a spiritual body. He now has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has been made a life-giving spirit and he sits at God's right hand as the head of the church. He pours out the gift of Holy Spirit and he commissions the ministries that are sent in the church. And in the future, it'll be Jesus who judges the living and the dead. How many of you have ever heard of the book of life? Ever heard of the book of life? You know whose book that is? Jesus's. it says it's the book of life of the Lamb. Jesus is so much more than what he was when he walked the earth. And you want to know something? You are going to get a body just like his when he returns. You're going to be more than you are sitting here today. That's pretty wonderful. I want to close in Revelation chapter 5. We don't, you don't read the book of Revelation very much. Many people don't because it deals with the future. And people are like, i got enough problems with the present. Okay, It's the future. It's going to happen. But I need today. The Book of Revelation has great truth in it. And look at our Savior here in Revelation chapter five, verse nine, and they sung a new song, saying, "Thou art worthy talking to Jesus. You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why was Jesus worthy? Because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by the blood, by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation." And then let's skip to verse 12. It says, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy. What is he worthy for? He's worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's our Savior. What a wonderful name. What a powerful name. What a beautiful name. What a Savior. I'd like to close this in prayer. Why don't you all stand up. We'll pray together. If you're near someone, you can hold their hand. If you're not, you can walk up if you like. But Father God, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you, Father, for having a plan, for sending a Redeemer, for giving us access to you as sons and daughters. And God, I thank you for Jesus Christ. And we, we are in awe of our Savior. And he is worthy of all honor and blessing. And all that we enjoy, God, we enjoy because of what he did. And I ask you for your blessing upon each man and woman here today, God, that you can open our eyes to you and your love and your goodness and your kindness more than ever before. And I pray, God, that as we walk forth this week, we can imitate our big brother, Jesus Christ. And I pray in his name, amen. Well, God bless you. You guys are the best. Love y'all.